you're listening to Keystone Cold Cases, a podcast where we reignite cold cases across Pennsylvania. Hey, it's Chelsea. Hey, it's Grace. And hey, it's Sarah. And today, I am going to take back a promise I made on the last episode where I said I was going to leave the Pittsburgh area. We're going to stick in Pittsburgh for one more week here. And then I promise to leave Pittsburgh for the next case. I know we've been having a lot of Western PA love lately. So today, though, we are looking at a double death. And the reason that we're calling it a double death is because it can't actually be classified as a double homicide yet. So we are talking about the case of Scott Fosna and Sean Bauer. They were 15-year-old friends who attended a party on the night of July 16th, 2002, just a week before they would both turn 16. As they left the party, they were walking home along Cash Dollar Road when a mysterious event or series of events occurred that left them dead with no evidence nearby. So, Sean and Scott were absolutely the best of friends. They did everything together. And like I mentioned, they were even born within the same week. They were both really excited to be turning 16 within the next week because it meant, you know, driving and freedom and all of that good stuff that you look forward to as a teenager. So Sean's birthday is July 22nd and Scott's is the 25th. And all night when they were out with their friends, they were just talking about all the freedom they would get to have soon. And they really were just excited to have that freedom with the ability to drive and go. So there were a couple different accounts of stories from them and uh, just the way that different people described them. So they were both described as fun to be around. And like I said before, just always together. Scott was the sweet, quiet kid. And then Sean was kind of the other side of that. He was described as more of a ladies man, the boisterous personality type, the kind that would, you know, put up a fight against something, which kind of comes into play a little bit later when we talk about theories. But they just really enjoyed the time they spent together with their friends, with each other. And they were with each other constantly staying at one or the other's house all the time. And I'm going to post a clip from a map from an article that was printed that shows where they were walking the night that they were killed. So they were walking home to Water Station Road, and it runs perpendicular to Cash Dollar Road, which is where the house they were at was. So they were very close. They just had to walk up a street and make a turn and they would have been at the house. Earlier that night, they were at a pond with a group of about nine friends. And after they wrapped it up at the pond, they went back to another friend's house. They were all just hanging, doing whatever teenagers do. And then there's a little bit of debate about exactly what happened after that point. And we'll kind of get into that a little bit later when I talk about an interview with Scott's mom. But they do know that they probably left the house around 1 a.m. So the boys were discovered somewhere between 1.30 and 2 a.m. on July 17th along Cash Dollar Road. A driver saw them along the road and called it into 911. That's so 
fast. Yeah. I mean, real. That's a really, really fast from when they left to when they were discovered. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And the person that called it in also said, you know, like there was nothing nearby. It was so strange. It was she said it wasn't just one of those, you know, you pull up on something and she kind of described like coming up on a deer on the road. Yeah. And she's like, you know, you're so used to that living out here in this part of the country. But, you know, you're expecting when you see something like this, it's a deer. And when you see that it's people and there's no signs of anything around them, what do you even do? Wow. So, obviously, she called 911. So, when emergency crews did arrive, they found that Sean had already died. Um, His injuries included a torn aorta and a split kidney. Oh, my God. But Scott was still showing vital signs. So, the only wound that was visible at that time was a circular impact wound on his head. So he was then rushed to the hospital, but he was pronounced dead at Allegheny General at 3.33 a.m. So they left the house at 1. This all happened somewhere between 1.30 and 2 a.m. And then emergency crews come in. They get Scott to AGH, and by 3.30 he has also passed. Originally, they said that they thought the boys had been struck by a vehicle or multiple vehicles. But like I said before, there was nothing at the scene. Literally nothing. No skid marks, um, no evidence of broken glass, no paint transfer, no tires off the side of the road from someone swerving for any reason. Like literally nothing that they could even try to grasp at straws. I mean, I don't really think you have to hit someone that going that fast or out of control to leave that much damage. I mean, I wouldn't think that pain transfer would transfer a long skin if it wasn't at a high impact. Oh, yeah. But it's, I mean, it's a very rural road. So they were checking like the trees around the road and like any sort of if there was guardrail there, which I don't think there was. Well, I'm just saying it sounds it could possibly be intentional, not accidental. I feel like if it was accidental, right. someone probably would have veered off or tried to avoid them or, you know, what you're explaining. But if it was intentional, I don't think you'd have to be going very fast to leave a trace, to leave damage. Yeah. And that is a theory that comes up later is that it was intentional. So like them not finding anything just kind of helps to almost prove that it maybe wasn't an accident um, in some of these theories. So the Um, The Emmy at the time did say that Sean definitely appeared to have been hit by a vehicle, but Scott's injuries were more consistent with a singular like blow to the head versus some sort of vehicle trauma because there was no other visual trauma on the body. So unless somehow he had only hit his head and not anything else, they definitely thought that there was an external factor along with a vehicle. When you said circular impacts, I just immediately thought hammer. So I'm not sure. There were a couple different reports of size and they kind of ranged anywhere from two to four inches. So, you know, I don't know what size. Okay. I would like larger than a hammer. Um, I think it could also be, I feel like kids are dumb as sh**. I was dumb. Could it be that they were messing around and something happened and maybe them being best friends, the one kid wanted to 
tell or bring it up to police and that could implicate more than just a couple people did they silence him i mean you hear crazy stories about things going wrong when kids are messing around that late you know yeah there is they do have that theory that uh it's possible that one was hurt and the other was killed just to cover up um so that there would not be witnesses Mm. yeah you just feel like they're so close yeah so they did find and this is what makes it feel weirder as if there should have been something more at the scene um they found the boys blood 198 feet away from where their bodies were like what do you mean like found their blood like on something or just like i couldn't get the actual like files because it's an open case and all i had was newspaper descriptions and they all just described it as being found multiple feet away but you found the actual so, distance. Yeah, 198. Hmm. Yeah. Could so. that be where something happened and maybe they tried to get away or something? Or or does it feed it more into the, like the car theory, like intentional car? And I don't know. I don't know. It's it's one of those facts that kind of almost makes all the theories not work. Um, it's just weird that there would be blood, but only from them. Like no other anything. Oh, so it's from both of them. From what I understand, yeah. Really? I thought... I The articles that I found, which are very few and far between, um, just said the boy's blood, um, and the apostrophe was always after the S, so I just assumed it was both. Yeah, I can't really wrap my head around why that would that be. Happens. Yeah. Yeah. So the community's initial response was also like really where i went first and i think where a lot of people went first is that it must have just been a hit and run like something happened and they got hit and you know just drove off didn't want to deal with the consequences which is still a quite likely possibility here their hesitation with that just is again the blunt force trauma injury on the skull um versus you know both of them having split kidneys or you know the the sort of internal body damage sorry Um, what can cause split kidneys would that just be from very high impact like a car crash i assume i mean yeah high pressure i'm just not sure i feel like we've never heard that in any of the cases like split organs yeah, I don't think I have. I just, yeah, I assume it would be from high impact like that. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So there was actually uh, the father of one of their friends said, you know, this shouldn't be happening to anybody at all. But believe me, I'm going to be sitting around watching for drunk guys with dented cars at the bar. And I'm like, okay. All right. <laughs> so interesting advocacy but advocacy nonetheless i'll take it and i did find an article from the york dispatch from a couple years later and my notes here says march 2002 but it was 2004 stating that the mother of the house that had hosted the party the boys were at earlier that night pled guilty to charges of corrupting the morals of a minor and furnishing alcohols to minor. Um, and that was all as a result of giving them alcohol the night of their deaths. However, 
according to Scott's mother, now she only had access to his toxicology reports, of course. Um, she doesn't have access to Sean's. But according to Scott's mother, he had nothing in his system at all. And she was very open in the interview I listened to. You know, she said, oh, I know, like, he smoked weed all the time. He would go to parties and drink. I know he tried coke, like, you know, and and she said, you know, I know he was around all that stuff. I'm sure he tried it all. Um, you know, she wasn't out there trying to say, you know, oh, well, you know, he definitely didn't have anything in his system, you know, like, right. she she seems like she would be admitting if if there was anything there. She did say that the test did not include THC, but she is certain that he would have had THC in his system. Regardless, having THC in your system doesn't mean you should get murdered. So even and it doesn't really was, explain anything, anything. So. Yeah. So the podcast I was listening to that had this interview was Catch My Killer. And this is where I was able to hear Scott's mother share some personal information about the boys, but also just kind of some details on the case. She herself, just kind of her personal theory, she doesn't think that it was an accident at all. So Chelsea, that really goes back to kind of like what you were bringing up earlier, that it could have been intentional. She believes that there was a plan for them to have to leave the party. It it seems to me that the boys were supposed to spend the night at their friend's house after the party. Like the original plan was not for them to to come home based on the way she was talking. Um so she thinks that the people at the party or some other people who knew about the party set this up so that they would have to leave and therefore be stranded in this middle of nowhere road at 1am. She said that she just has this gut feeling that she can't explain that they were beaten up first and then they were run over and then just left in the road. And she just said she can't get rid of the feeling, can't shake it, can't explain it, but that's just how I feel. And for what it's worth, it seems like mother's intuition. Um, not that that holds up in court or has scientific proof, but it was just interesting to hear her um, talk about it. She goes into a little bit more detail and she says that either someone told one of the boys to leave. You know, Sean was more reserved, but Scott was kind of the the crazier, louder, you know, the boisterous one. So maybe they were being too loud and the house they were staying at was a friend that lived with their grandparents. So, you know, maybe they said, hey, you're going to wake my grandparents. You got to go home, you know. And, you know, some sort of reason prompted them to leave the house. And so they ended up having to leave. So in this idea, there are two scenarios for when they leave. First scenario, they left their friend's house and had to walk past this garage. Um, they lived in this area, right? They were walking home. Um, the boys knew the man that owned the garage, and apparently they did not get along at all. Like, very bad relationship amongst those neighbors. Scott's mother said it's possible that they could have gotten into an argument with this neighbor and something just went wrong. And then maybe the boys were moved to the road to look like some sort of cover up. 
um, for what really happened. Was there, I'm going to assume no, since you said there really wasn't evidence, but were there, was there evidence of dragging bodies? I assume that with like gravel on the side of the road or mud or whatever it was, there would be some sign that some bodies were dragged unless they were carefully placed there. I kind of thought that too. I didn't see anywhere that specified one way or the other that they definitely didn't find drag marks or they definitely did have proof one way, you know, like. Okay. They had to have been in that spot versus they could have been placed there. I think it's fairly assumed that that's where they died. But there are a couple theories that do follow this idea that they were killed first and then dropped there. Okay. So the other scenario that came from Scott's mother about what could have happened after they left that house, if it wasn't this neighbor that had the garage, they think that the boys may have known something about someone who was running drugs. Um, And of course, having that knowledge, if you're a 15-year-old and... You think you're cool for the knowledge and you start spreading word, you know, that'll get you in some deep, deep crap with people that are running the drugs because it's life and death. So there is that theory that somebody heard that he was spreading some of the details that he knew about something and that the boys were taken care of as a result of basically knowing too much. Now... I have a friend here who's local to this area, and so I was asking her about it, and she said, you know, early aughts, we're looking at, there was definitely a drug problem, but again, it was a small suburb in 2002, so, you know, it was a drug problem pretty much everywhere, but there was, apparently, this area was very into coke, from what I'm hearing from the interviews, from... Um, my friend that kind of, you know, knew the area then. And Scott's mom is convinced that the police already know who's involved with running drugs and that the police have already questioned the person who's responsible and they're just not holding them to it. That being said, that is just one of her thoughts and she has multiple different theories. So That's just kind of one of a blip of many. Now, continuing on with this kind of idea of the drugs, his mom did say also in that interview that there was a drug bust that same night in Zillianople, which we talked about a couple of episodes back with some of the other Pittsburgh cases. Um, And apparently this drug bust was right around midnight. So a lot of the police force probably would have been redirected over there. And Scott's mom thinks that there's a possibility that some of the people were running from police and that somehow that connection is what got the boys killed. I don't know what connection there would be other than maybe both running through the same woods, if that's the thought. Um, But his mom definitely thinks that there's a relation to that drug bust that they made that night, you know, an hour before the boys left. So kind of the last big thought I really have as far as theories that I've found online and kind of scrounged for is this idea that someone really wanted these boys dead for some reason and paid off guys at the party to dope them up 
or get them drunk as part of a plot to kill them for whatever reason. There's no reason given. I wasn't going to include this and it came up in four different sources. So apparently this is important to someone. So they have this plot to kill these teenage boys that's never clarified and their way of doing it is to get them drunk and high on anything they can and then they just hit them and beat them and then the story kind of ends there's no explanation of any other part of it now there is a woman who claims that she was part of this plot and i guess she has publicly claimed this um i'm still not going to throw anyone's name out but she has said you know oh i'm involved with this and has talked to scott's mother about it and or has talked to other people who have gone to scott's mother about it and now nobody can seem to find her like she was never questioned by police according to scott's mother which of course you know she just might not know all the details of the case um but like she can't get in touch with this woman on social media anywhere she can't find her she um, I guess was trying to have other people help her find her. Um, and I guess she just can't get in touch with her. So I don't know how reliable that is. It sounds a little wishy-washy, but multiple sources brought up this idea that maybe someone was hired to get them drunk or high. But then Scott's mom also said, you know, there was nothing found in a talk screen or within his autopsy that reflected that so that's so strange the two things i think of are either this woman was just trying to insert herself in the case just because people like to do that or there's something deeper and she was silenced somehow it's like both sides of the spectrum either like literally nothing or like hmm, that could be something like really interesting i lean more toward you know someone trying to insert themselves in the case but you never know well And it's one of those things, too, you know, small town suburb, the town where this took place in Butler County has a population of under 2000 people. So tiny town gossip travels. One thought becomes fact the next day and then it grows into a rumor. Sure. You know, that's where some of those theories can snowball from. Yeah. So, I mean, essentially, all we know is that their bodies were found around 2 a.m. And Scott's death was kind of confirmed through severed aorta. So basically what we do know for sure is that Scott died from the severed aorta. um, And his manner of death is actually still considered undetermined, not homicide, which is interesting, um, but also not accidental. So just kind of sitting in that limbo. Um, but we do know that that's how he died. We know that there was blunt force trauma for Sean. We still don't know, you know, what the weapon was for sure. There was no evidence found of what it could have been. Um, we know that blood was found 198 feet away in some direction, maybe both of their blood, maybe only one lack of clarity there. And that basically we have nothing after a 1am timeline of them leaving the house. So you would think with such a small window between being found and like it's an hour at the very most and still nothing. Yeah. That's just, I don't know, unimaginable. 
Well, and think about, you know, that's why so many old, old cases would go cold because there just weren't witnesses. And, you know, other than maybe having their cell phones on them, if they would have even had like a GPS enabled phone, which would have been rare at that time, you know, you could maybe triangulate a cell signal, but even that's not going to give you an exact location. Technology in the boonies now, which is where they were, is just like technology way back with all the cold, cold cases. Yeah. (laughs) So, sorry, tangent. All right. Um, There is a Facebook group for anyone that would be interested in joining. Um, Many of the family members and community members have come together to create it. It's called In Memory of Scott Fosnaw and Sean Bauer. Um, and Fosnaugh is F-O-S-N-A-U-G-H-T. If you do have any information, uh, you are asked to anonymously contact Pennsylvania Crime Stoppers. You can call them at 1-800-4PA-TIPS, or you can go to their website. Everyone remains anonymous, and you could be eligible for a cash reward for information. All right, so... Now, I want to go into just some updates and additional information about um, the case of Kathy Kelly. So if you don't remember, that is um, the case of the 10-year-old who was walking home from the skating rink or her sister's house and went missing and was not seen again. That was part of the, the Pittsburgh Five group that I did. It's a the original episode is um, number 77. So if you want to go back and listen to that and reacquaint yourself with it, you absolutely can. But in that episode, I had mentioned a relative who was commenting on some different Facebook posts that I had seen. And uh, this relative heard the episode and reached out with some feedback. So we just want to bring that feedback to you because there was a lot of clarification from the person that I spoke with. And yeah, this isn't Really just kind of clarifying updates of anything new that's happened in the case, but just some clarification from family member. So uh, the relative that I spoke with was the best friend and cousin that I had mentioned in the last episode, um, and her name is Kim. So Kim told me first and foremost um, that our reporting was accurate based on news sources but um, that the news sources themselves were not necessarily accurate due to the people they were quoting. So clarifying that, we're not saying like the news sources did anything wrong. But when quoting Kathy's mother, apparently Kathy's mother at that time was an alcoholic and she would retell the story of what happened that day multiple different ways. So. Anytime it came up, there was a new story. So she said it's really hard to believe anything that she's ever said to press because her story changes with us every time. So just kind of a grain of salt there. Um, But obviously, you know, that's saying her word is right over Kathy's mom's word. So we're not taking word of mouth from one over another. There are a lot of details that Kim gave me that helped to sort out some of the confusion with police reports. And when you understand the way calendars work, you'll understand why there were some age discrepancies. 
So what if we don't understand? Then you're screwed. You're just okay. you're never going to get it. Um, Kim was able to confirm a lot of information for us as well. Um, Kathy was born in California. Um, she had a brother who was also born there among other siblings who were born much earlier. So if you remember, we talked about the fact that there was a 20 year age gap between Judy and Kathy and Judy was the big sister. So there were, you know, some speculative comments made about like, oh, well, could she have really been Judy's daughter? And the person I spoke to is Judy's daughter. And she said, I assure you, Kathy is not my sister. <laughs> so okay. it was just kind of this, you know, like, it wouldn't make sense because she was older than Kathy. So why would they try to hide if there was another baby? And like, she's like, it just, it didn't make sense. So um, the large age gap that was there between Judy and Kathy was actually because of some marital issues. So Judy and Kathy's parents were married. They had two children, Judy and another sibling. And then life got tough. They got divorced. But after they finalized their divorce, they were able to rekindle their marriage. And then they got remarried. And then to celebrate their remarriage, they had two more kids. And so then that's where Kathy comes in. So that kind of helps to put into perspective that age gap there um, and why uh, Judy is definitely not Kathy's mom. Anyway, so Kathy was born in California, but like I had said in the first episode, um, a death led her mother to return to the Pittsburgh area to be near her family. Um, now, Judy, remember Kathy's older sister, had remarried and had children, um, but eventually her marriage ended. And so very shortly after her mother was already planning to come back to Pittsburgh, she, you know, kind of became a single mom. And so they just decided they were going to try to go at the single mom life together because it's so incredibly difficult to do that having any other form of support is, you know, really the best you can hope for. So unfortunately, it didn't really work out the way they had hoped. Um, like I said before, Judy and Kathy's mother became an alcoholic. And Kim said she experienced some of the effects of this, um, but, you know, not anything, you know, super major, just some memories that she can still pinpoint. So definitely something that was happening through most of Kim's childhood, um, which would also be true for then Kathy's childhood. So... This is kind of where the confusion surrounding the dates comes from. So on the original episode, we were saying that some places it's considered to be a case from 1980 and in others it says 1981. And they think that the reason they did that was so that they could list Kathy as a runaway and not have to deal with a kidnapping in the neighborhood. So when... In 1980, in order to be classified as a runaway, you had to be 10 years old. So at this time, they wanted to classify her as a runaway, but she was only nine. She didn't have her 10th birthday yet. By changing her birthday back a year to say that she was born in 1970 instead of 1971, then they would have been able to list her as a runaway. And... 
So that's where it really starts. And then from there, so many of the sources would say, you know, a couple years later. And so then that mangles some years. Or they would say, you know, it happened in 1980, so she was 10. And then they just report that, you know, a 10 to 12-year-old girl. So that's kind of some of the age discrepancy there is that they actually went in and changed her age. I don't know how that works, but that is what I was told as the family member. So, so sorry, what you're saying is that the police changed the date so that they could list her as a runaway instead of investigating it as a kidnapping? Is that what you're saying? Yes, or is that what she is saying? Well, that's but, what yeah. she is saying. Yes. That's what I'm reiterating. That is really messed her. up. If that's true, like truly. Yeah. Well, and I mean, there's a lot of complaints, especially 90s, early aughts in regards to detective work in the Pittsburgh area. Yeah. Yeah. We've definitely seen so, that. There's I think a little bit of that gets tossed into every theory that comes out anywhere near Pittsburgh. <laughs> so but that's where kind of the year that she goes missing starts to change because they can't actually change her age. Right. But they can say, you know, oh, oh, she's a 10 year old girl. She's, you know, whatever. And then eventually they can go back and say, oh, no, well, she went missing in 1981, not 1980. She was 10. I remember she was 10. And so that's kind of how they manipulate the date from what I'm understanding. Yikes. Right. So it would explain some of that confusion of the age and dates. But, you know, there is no concrete documented proof of that. Um, just an explanation from somebody. So they did eventually have to change it to missing persons. Like I said before, um, they couldn't just let her be a runaway forever. If she is not found anywhere or located as a runaway, they have to be listed as a missing person. So that is kind of why, I guess, we had all that confusion with the date. So, oh, the other piece that kind of solidifies when Kathy would have been born and therefore when she would have had to have gone missing, remember that Judy had a baby. And that's who Kathy was visiting before she went missing. In all of the photos of that baby's first birthday party, there is no photos of Kathy. So if this baby is born 1980, which we know that it's documented, there's, you know, birth certificates and records and all that fun stuff. Baby's born in April 1980. She had to have been a baby, right? Because she was seeing the infant baby. If it had been 1981, the baby wouldn't have been an infant. And this is coming from a person in the family, you know, like, so some people might say, oh, a one-year-old could still be considered an infant. But, you know, she's saying, like, in my family, we never would have considered that an infant. You know, we wouldn't have said anything along those lines um, unless she truly was like a newborn. So... That definitely leads her to believe that it had to have been 1980. And then also, all of the photos from her first birthday party, like I said, don't have Kathy in them. And she said that's not an event that she would have missed. And her first birthday party would have been April 1981. 
which would have been before Memorial Day weekend. So why would Kathy have not been there? Right. Okay. And so they kind of say, like, if she wasn't there, it's because she was missing by that time. Okay. So that kind of helps to explain it a little bit um, and to kind of give some traction to to what she's saying about maybe manipulating the age or the years. We also had a nice good laugh over the fact that I couldn't think of a phone book. Um, so she she told me when I talked to her that um, she and her husband actually, when they listened to the episode, were like yelling they used a phone book at like the episode. <laughs> and I said, listen, I'm a young millennial. Okay. I'm dumb. I get it. I don't know these things. Um, just kidding. But yeah. So she did say that their numbers were always listed. Um, and actually Kim at the time was living in a house that had previously belonged to a different family member. And the phone number was the same. So even if they thought they were calling this other person, it would have gone to Kim. Um, so she said the numbers that she would have dialed would have been numbers she already knew, but she also very easily could have looked us up if she needed to, um, just because of being in the phone book. Okay. Um, now, I want to hop back a little bit to the night that Kathy went missing. Kim said that, yeah, they were literally always at the skating rink. Um, now Kim had been at karate earlier in the evening. Um, she said she probably got to the skating rink that night closer to 9 PM. And now her mom and stepdad both worked there. So her family always spent lots of time there, but of course, newborn baby at home, mom's at home. And Kim specifically remembers Kathy being at the roller rink. And if Kim didn't get there till nine, Kathy would have had to still have been there at that point. Kim also said that she has absolutely no memory of Kathy leaving the skating rink early that night. Um, she said it could have happened, but you know, the odds of her leaving without saying something were pretty slim. Like she would at least usually walk up and just do like a, Hey, I'm heading home or Hey, you know, whatever. So um, she said it could have happened, but she just doesn't remember it the way that her mom tells it. But anyway, they all hung out at the skating rink all the time and their parents worked there. So they really got to know a lot of the people there. Um, they got to know other workers. They got to know, you know, like the regulars that would come in and skate all the time. And underneath the roller rink, there was also um, an arcade. and. There were a bunch of older kids that would hang out at the arcade or that worked at the arcade and whatever. And so the kids all got to know those older kids. And you know how teenagers can be. They kind of get that protective air about the slightly younger kids. So there is kind of a thought that um, Kathy could have befriended some of these older people and that really they would have been willing to help her um, and that they probably could have helped her that night to get somewhere. And that if a 10 year old was going to escape and get out of something, um, they, they would be the ones to help her do it. That makes sense. So um, I thought that was kind of interesting to get a little bit of that perspective. Um, 
And then um, I can't go into details about this, but there were definitely reasons Kathy would want to get out of her home environment. So it's very realistic that she would, you know, be able to just kind of leave and not think about looking back. Um, We know her mother was an alcoholic, but there were some other stressors at home within the family as well. Um, Definitely motivation for her to get out. Then another theory that came up from Kim is actually one that her mother had. Um, There are some abandoned coal mines out in that area, and their mother believes that Kathy's body was left in that coal mines, whether she was killed intentionally or not. um, Something happened, and her body was dropped at the coal mines, um, and nobody would ever go down there because... They're closed. They're abandoned. You know, why would you? Um, Kim's mother definitely carries one specific idea of who she thinks is responsible. Um, But, you know, just due to general lack of evidence, we're not going to throw anything, um, any specific names out. Um, But I do remember an investigator saying the same sort of thing. Like, you know, I, I know what happened, but I just don't have that one piece that I need. and it it seems like based on what Kim was telling me that she and this investigator were kind of on the the same wavelength with that. Um, so just two more things here. Uh, there is still some hope that given the right conditions and, you know, that Kathy is still alive somewhere just through time, um, that the truth could come out. Um, so like I said, I can't really go into details about it, but based on what I heard, I think it is very likely that there could be some traction in this case in the future. Um, it's just going to require the right conditions for really an unpredictable set of events. So, um, Kim did also point out that a lot of the age progressions that are out there for Kathy don't look like anyone in their family, um, which might sound a little weird, but she said, growing up, all of the girls look so familiar. I mean, you can look at any girl in the family, including Kathy, up to age 10, and they all have this same look. None of them deviate from it. So if Kathy truly does look like the photos, which we all know are just guesses anyway, um, she would kind of be the anomaly of the family. So they don't think that that's insanely accurate. Um, but, um, I'm going to just wrap this up with a final quote from my interview with Kim. Um, she said, whatever happened to her, whether she is alive and doing well, or someone killed her and she's gone, it got her out of that house. And at that moment, the struggle stopped. It just sucks as a mom and a grandma to think that there is some girl out there that has nobody to talk to and nobody to go to when things are wrong. That's all we have for this episode of the Keystone Cold Cases podcast. Please remember never to reach out to family or friends of the victims, only to law enforcement if you have any tips. This episode was researched and hosted by me, Sarah. Find all of our sources, social media connections, and contact information at kccpod.com. Theme music and production assistance from Darren Makins. Join us again next week for another case to sleuth out.